The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch stratacoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. On March 24, 1994, a man named Carl Volz dropped off his friend Kenneth Hayes at 2250 Annabelle Street in Detroit, Michigan. As he got out of the car, a gunman came out of the darkness, fatally shooting Hayes as he struggled up the driveway. Neither Carl Volz nor anyone in the house had seen the shooter's face. However, a car in the area belonged to a young man named Jay Clay, which led investigators to another young man named Larry Smith. The victim's landlord said that Hayes' girlfriend identified Larry, and the landlord's son thought the assailant walked like Larry as well. Then, shell casings allegedly found at the scene were the same size as one allegedly found in Larry's laundry hamper. But this is wrongful conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today's episode is an episode, well, of full circles. And when I say that, we have somebody who listeners of the show will probably recognize, one of my great heroes, Jared Adams, whose full circle involved going from being wrongfully convicted himself, from serving over a decade in a maximum security prison, to becoming a lawyer and helping other wrongfully convicted people get justice. Jared so great to have you back on the show. Thank you, Jason. Always a pleasure, man. The other full circle here is the star of our show, a gentleman named Larry Smith Jr. We're glad you're here. Thank you very much. When I say full circle, this is a man who's working at a rec center now in Detroit, Michigan, helping senior citizens as well as youth. And it is Detroit that he was snatched out of when he was just a kid himself. But before we get into all of that, what was your life like growing up? Did you grow up in the Detroit area? Yes, sir. I was the only child. My mom, she had me, and then my siblings would come later, like basically through a, not adoption more or less, but we was family. We grew up in the same house, and life was cool. My mom always told me, as long as I worked, as long as I put forth that effort, as long as I did well in school, that the times was tough, but it was going to come a time when they wouldn't be so tough. 
she was going to have those degrees that she was going and working so hard for. And that our life was just going to be different. Great. So. Right. I read here that your mom was studying for her master's in sociology. Did you have similar aspirations? I mean, you were just an eight-year-old kid at the time. What did you have in mind? What did you want to do with your life? I was working and I was going to school. My, my intent was to become a respiratory therapist. I think my future was promising. Yeah. And your nickname, I understand, was Butter. How'd that come to be? My mama. Something with my mom when I was born. My complexion. And this is the Michigan story. We've heard a lot of Michigan stories on this show. And this was a particular time and place when people were being framed. Let's call it what it is. Like it was day in and day out. You got to think about where Detroit was in the 90s. Just like a lot of the inner city neighborhoods dealing with the crack epidemic and drugs and gangs and things like that. So Detroit was dealing with a bunch of homicides, you know, and what they would do is try to find ways to resolve unsolved homicides, and they would do it in a way that would just downright be violating people's constitutional rights. So Larry fell into the crosshairs somehow, and it didn't make sense because you were a kid who wasn't on the radar, shouldn't have been on the radar of the police at all, which must have been tricky just to avoid that life in the area and that time and place that you were growing up in. But somehow or other, you were navigating these challenges and then everything went crazy. So Jarrett, set the stage for the whole situation, if you would. Well, I think the best place to start with, with setting the stage is Ralph Cartwright, who was you know addicted to drugs along with his mom, Sandra Cartwright, lived together in a house that they used to rent out rooms to drug dealers to have a supply of drugs. And in this case, the victim lived in one of those rented rooms because he sold drugs and robbed drug dealers. Which is dangerous behavior to say the least. So the victim, Kenneth Hayes, was shot around 5.30 a.m., March 24, 1994, in front of the Cartwright's house at 2250 Annabelle Street, Detroit, Michigan. The victim was called out of his house at the middle of the night to do a drug deal. He has someone drive him to an apartment complex. We assume he makes a purchase or, or not. He comes back. When he's coming back and he's getting out of his vehicle is when someone is lying in wait and runs out of the bushes and fires shots. The victim takes off and runs across the front of the car from where the person dropped him off. And the driver was Mr. Hayes' friend, a guy named Carl Volts. And Mr. Volts saw the shooter and said, that I couldn't see anyone's face, but he gave a description and it did not match Larry at all. He described the man as being heavyset. If you see any picture of Larry from back then, Larry is thin. You would not mistake him for being heavyset at all. Right, but Carl Volz's description was disregarded, as was the statement of another witness, the victim's girlfriend, who was in the house at the time of the shooting. What did she tell the police? She said exactly what she said to the Conviction Integrity Unit years later. She said she never saw anyone shoot the victim. The victim was her boyfriend, so she would have been honest about that. She said she was still in the bed asleep and didn't see anything but heard the shots. But no one knew about that statement until years later. Rather, there was a statement from the landlord, Sandra Cartwright, who, as someone involved in drugs, she and Ralph were vulnerable to police coercion. Well, Ms. Cartwright attributed the following words to the victim's girlfriend, quote, I looked right in his face. It was butter, unquote. 
And as we mentioned, that was Larry's childhood nickname. That same person denied ever saying that she saw Larry. And she also told police the very same day that they were investigating that someone had came up to her in a social club and told her that they were going to kill her boyfriend. And she gave them the name of that person. And they never went to go talk to this guy, investigate this guy. So instead of just an open and shut case, they chased down a far less compelling lead than a drug dealer who was recently robbed. And who knows what kind of relationship that drug dealer had with law enforcement. So this much less compelling lead was that one of the witnesses had said that they saw a car that belonged to a friend of Larry's named Jay Clay, who delivered newspapers. But it was 5.30 a.m., the typical newspaper delivery time, and this was on his delivery route. Larry's friend has identified his vehicle driving past around the time. He has a legitimate reason why. Now, something like that, in most cases, isn't uncommon to be reported and followed up on. But in Larry's case, they didn't follow up on it to investigate it, to find out if it was any truth of whether his friend was involved or whether he was involved. They investigated to make them involved. They apply pressure to Sandra Cartwright and made her come up with a version of events that has been found to be untrue. And the police knew because they had a police report from the young lady who said she never told Sandra Cartwright anything about identifying Larry Smith as shooting because she said she was never up. And then Ralph Cartwright supported his mother's narrative, saying that he didn't see Larry's face, but he recognized him anyway in the area before and after the shooting. <sighs> like, what does that even mean? Larry was never identified ever at all by eyewitness. They got the witness to say that the person that they saw around the crime scene, the way they walked was similar to how that guy named Butter you know, a couple blocks down, walked. And also, his friend drives the car. So you can see how, if you want to make that narrative fit, you can make it fit. So we have Sandra Cartwright's secondhand identification, even though the alleged eyewitness said she never saw anyone. And then Ralph making an identification of Larry's walk, which sounds like some sort of, like, it's almost junk science to the nth degree. But this was just a precursor to actual junk science later when a honcho brand boot print was allegedly found at the scene. Now, Larry, this was in your neighborhood. Your friend Jay had probably overheard the shots. When did you hear about it? Well, my mom, she called me at work, said she wanted me to go to the police station. I ain't asked her no question like, okay, mama, I ain't did nothing. I ain't involved in nothing. So I got in my car from work and I drove down there and it took me 26 years, 10 months and seven days actually to come home from that ride. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from ATT Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. ATT Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit ATT.com slash hypergig for details. 
Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And for a limited time, get more fun for less with the Michigan Bundle for just $49.99. Exclusive to Michigan residents only. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. So as they're investigating the case, they've already gotten out ahead of their skis. They've charged both Larry's friend and Larry with this murder based solely off of this guy who says he saw the vehicle and he's seen a guy running away who appears to walk like Larry and the third party statement of a lady who says someone told them they saw you know Larry do it so the case immediately starts to fall apart because Jason it wasn't true on the day that Larry was arrested the police go inside of his house and they come out and say, we found some shell casings and these shell casings match some shell casings that are over at the crime scene, right? Right. They said 40 caliber bullets were used and then they allegedly found an empty box of 40 caliber bullets in Larry's bedroom, as well as a spent shell casing in his laundry hamper, which was then said to have been fired by the same weapon. But then the autopsy report comes back. And the autopsy says the victim was not shot with the shell casings that you got from the crime scene or that you got from Larry's house. He was shot with a smaller caliber weapon and the bullet was left inside of him. Jesus Christ. It gets worse. No, it Jesus. can't get worse. going to get no, worse? It gets, it gets worse. Listen to I'm this. I'm sorry. I got to so, laugh to keep from crying sometimes. I, I know, but this is going to really blow your mind now. So as the weeks are going on and they're turning into months, and they're realizing that they got the wrong guy, right? The, the wrong two guys. But they still tried to square this circle. So let me guess. They accused Jay, the paperboy, of firing a 32. The co-defendant is able to produce a lady. And this is an older lady, very credible, no dog in this fight. She says that that boy was on my porch handing me the paper when we both heard the shots. And so... That definitively places the co-defendant delivering papers. So they dis this the charges against the co-defendant and now said Larry did this all by himself and had to be shooting with two guns and got away on foot. Shooting with two guns like the Wild West, like boom, 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 boom. Like yeah. the Wild West. Right. It gets worse, okay? When they investigate further, they find out that the person who dropped off the victim, Mr. Votes, said, I couldn't see anyone's face, but... The guy was only firing from one gun. So literally every step that they took to frame Larry, it was unraveling. So what they did was they reached to an old trick and they produced a jailhouse informant who put together a false story 
and he had never even met or seen or was even housed with Larry. So, Larry, back to you. So now you're caught up in this vortex. I mean, describe to us what it was like. You go from the police station, they interrogate you, they took you straight to jail from there? They kept me in jail for like three days, and they put me in the county. How long were you in jail awaiting trial? Eight months and something. Did you get assigned a public defender? Trash. Trash? My mother, she took her last money and got an attorney. He didn't do very well, more or less like, did you ever heard a term somebody swap somebody out or they don't do a great job? And I say that because the guy who testified against me, the jailhouse person, he had testified against other people as well. He had a history. And if somebody would have went and did some type of investigation, it, it was records that was in there, but the police and the prosecutors had them. They was in their files. And it's possible that they never made those records available to your attorney, just like the statement from the victim's girlfriend. But had you known about this repeat offender snitch, that could have crumbled their whole house of cards. But still, even without that, this snitch, Edward Allen, his story was full of holes. He alleged that you had bragged about how you killed Kenneth Hayes with a Glock 9mm, not two guns, right? While Jay Clay had a 45 caliber. So he got the calibers wrong and the number of assailants wrong. Pretty important details. But nonetheless, the state went to trial in November of 94, presenting the Cartwrights, this erroneous snitch testimony, as well as the 40 caliber shell casings, which allegedly served as this connection between Larry and the crime scene, even though the victim was killed by a 32 caliber weapon. And the only actual eyewitness, Carl Volz, said that the shooter fired only one gun. Yeah, so, you know, the police tried to frame Larry. It was a plant of 40 caliber shell casings at and around the scene of the shooting, and that these shell casings were recovered from Larry's house. And when the ballistics came back from the autopsy, it clearly was not the same caliber. And there was some explaining to do. Yet they still presented a police technician and a detective that testified about the 40 caliber bullets found at the scene and Larry's house, followed by a medical examiner who testified about the 32 caliber bullets found in the body of the victim. Yeah, and the bullet is so much bigger on a 40 caliber. They even presented a police firearms expert, David Pouch, who testified to that fact, but he also testified that the 40 caliber casings found at Larry's house were fired by the same gun as the casings from the scene. So, in other words, just doubling down on the two-gun theory. Even though the only real eyewitness, Carl Votes, has said he never saw anything but one person shooting with one gun. Carl testified that as soon as the victim got out of the car, someone ran out of a gangway and opened fire on him, who he described in detail, and the description did not match Larry at all. While Carl Bowles exonerated Larry, if the jury were to believe him over law enforcement, it would have meant that those shells had to have been planted in Larry's house, which was something it seems like they were not willing to accept. It would have also meant that two more officials who took the stand and claimed that Larry had made incriminating statements to them while in custody had actually perjured themselves. They did perjure themselves. I mean, point blank, period, they lied. But somehow they had muddied the waters enough with the casing allegedly found at Larry's house and the scene, in addition to a boot print that was found at the scene, that they matched with the Honcho brand boot taken from Larry's house. When the shoe print analyst took the stand, the prosecutor asked, quote, and these are a mirror image of that pattern, end quote, to which the expert agreed. If I found a pair of prints for Air Jordans, what does that mean? Nothing. 
There are other Air Jordans, just like there are other Honcho brand boots. I mean, right? It's like, did they only manufacture one pair? It's insane. Which is one reason why shoe print analysis is such bullshit, especially when there's no other corroborating information. The boot was a boot that his cousin had with a bag full of other clothes. They never provided any context to this boot. They never said they saw any mud on the boots, that the boots had looked like it had been worn at all. There was never any pictures matched up to the prints of the boots. The shit was all made up. And you can hear the shoe print analysis episode of Wrongful Conviction Junk Science that we're going to have linked in the bio. I just listened to it again myself. It's it's mind-boggling. So now we get to our witnesses. Let's start with Sandra Cartwright, who testified about the victim's girlfriend's alleged identification. Quote, I looked him right in the face. It was butter. End quote. Yeah, I looked him right in the face. And Sandra Cartwright had an open case against her and... She didn't come to court to testify on the day that she was called. The police issued a warrant for her arrest. And in exchange for her testifying, they dismissed the charges that were pending against her. So incentivized to say the least. But this statement was a secondhand account. What about the girlfriend herself? She was never called to court. It was some trickery. And, you know, there were some shortcomings of Larry's defense. I'll just say that. A fast one was gotten over on them. And this witness was never called. I don't believe that the defense team ever had the police report that was taken the night of from the witness who says that she never saw anyone. I believe if they had that, they would have called her because we know that Larry himself didn't learn of it until after his post-conviction lawyer had obtained it. And this was already a decade later. Wow. So the judge, jury, and defense were completely unaware of the girlfriend's actual statement. Just Sandra Cartwright's secondhand testimony to the contrary, with no opportunity to cross-examine the actual eyewitness. And not only can they not cross-examine this person, but now you have a jailhouse informant coming in and, you know, he's like, yeah, he told me he did it and, and, and things like that. And so you put that together, it's the perfect storm. And I understand that the inconsistencies between the guns in the snitch testimony and the thirty-two caliber bullets pulled from the body of the victim that was never pointed out. I didn't know nothing about this guy testified against me doing what he had a history of doing. Like, I just knew I didn't say nothing to him. I knew I didn't say nothing to no police that I didn't commit no crime. So the fabricated evidence appears to have overcome the only actual eyewitness, Carl Volz, as well as your mother who testified about how you were in your basement bedroom all night long. She knew Larry was in the house because she was in the front room finishing up their dissertation to complete her master's. Hmm. And it was only one way Larry could get out of his room. He would have to come up the stairs and go out the front door. When they said guilty, man, do you know that my lawyer, when I asked him, I said, what they say? He pushed away from me like he was scared. Like he didn't even want to talk to me. He, he wanted to be separated from me. And it was like, you got my life, man. Help me, you know, help me. Goodness, man. Mm. I'm sorry. Mm. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. 
Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit AT&T.com slash hypergig for details. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And for a limited time, get more fun for less with the Michigan Bundle for just $49.99. Exclusive to Michigan residents only. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. I went to Riverside Quarantine first. They brought us off a bus, all of us together, and they had a woman strip searches. Like they had a man tell us to take all our clothes off. And they had a lady inspector like we was cattle. This introduction into institutions, it was like an experience, the closest thing that I could see slaves have. My second day in general population, I seen a guy get raped. I walked in the shower and a guy was getting raped. Eight months in, I seen a guy get killed. I stayed there about 10 months. From there, they sent me up north to URF. And that stands for you are fucked. They had on KKK belt buckles, Thor tattoos, and then you had to fight with the guards, period. And if you didn't fight the guard, you had to go to the hole for a year. If you whooped the guard, then you was the man. If you didn't whoop the guard or you was refused to fight, if you lost, it was okay. But if you didn't fight, you had to go to a hole for a year. Like some gladiator shit. Yeah, for sure. They tell you fight, fuck, or lock up. And that's what it was. So to go through that experience and the whole time, all I'm saying is, damn, God, why you do this to me? Like, I ain't did nothing. So now, like, I'm going through process of, okay, ain't no God, ain't no this, ain't no that. Like, mama, I'm trying. Every phone calls is 8 to $10 to call home. Everything, I'm just a purity burden on everybody. I need help. The only help I got is me. I just got testified against by somebody who I don't know. And then back in 1995, I'm finding out that the guy who testified against me, the jailhouse person, he had testified against other people as well. He had a history. Well, how do I find these people? And that's put off a whole nother rat race because now I'm going through the process of learning to live inside of this environment. But I got to ask people who they call killers that I need to find out what the hell is going on with me in my life. So you were navigating this horrendously violent situation, while not knowing who of anyone you can trust, but still desperately in need of information on this snitch, Edward Allen, who was a prolific jailhouse snitch, and he wasn't the only one by far. Rather, Wayne County had a snitch system where they were sort of routinely incentivizing these guys, not only with lenient sentences, but they took it several steps further. I'm talking about drugs, women they would provide. They'd basically turn part of the police station into a flop house. Just going to say that too, Jason, where you can come and have girls come in and go out. And, and really what they were doing was this. They had a couple men at a time who were housed on a ninth floor lockup. 
And let me explain what the ninth floor lockup is. If you're suspected of a crime, the police could hold you for up to 48 hours. But at that point, they have to either release or charge you. So anyone on the ninth floor is only supposed to be on the ninth floor for up to 48 to 72 hours, you know, at most. They had a couple men at a time who were living on the ninth floor who were Michigan Department of Corrections inmates who were ridded out and housed on the ninth floor and given jobs as tear tenders. And they would grab a broom, sweep past your cell, start a conversation up with you, and then go out the next day and say, I talked to him, what you need me to do? And that was the scheme. If I understand this correctly, they were giving these guys on the ninth floor like papers to read so that they would know what to say, right? Because they obviously nobody confessed to these idiots when they were sweeping along the thing. Like, I mean, just think for a second how ridiculous that is. Some guy sweeping along is like, hey, Larry, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. I just killed this guy at five o'clock in the morning. How you doing? What's your name again? It's so stupid that it's like, I mean, nobody's going to do that. Yeah. But somehow or other, they were able to sell it. And one of the alleged culprits who was in this informant thing, he had done this upwards of 20 cases and no alarm bells go off. None. This goes without saying, but I have to say it. This was happening to young black men in the city of Detroit. This would have raised alarm bells if this took place in an affluent neighborhood or county. They were only doing this to people who had very little resources to afford a defense. And you say this all the time, Jason, the justice system is what you can afford and what you can't. Absolutely. And it starts with cash bail, because let's face it, if you have money for bail, you don't go through the same experience in the criminal legal system as those who don't. Guilty, not guilty, it doesn't matter. Only money matters. And not having it can leave you in a situation where an informant has an opportunity to trade false information on you, as would happen in this case, that can then be spun to appear truthful in court. And this Edward Allen and countless other snitches have worked the system with their allies in the prosecutor's offices around the country. And who knows, we'll never know how many lives they've ruined. By the admission of the guy testified against me, not only did he lie, he was weaponized by them. They taught him what to do when he was a minor. And then became an adult and then made it all the way to do it to me. Matter of fact, it's a guy named Charles Wilson, 172688. The same guy testified against me, testified against him 13 years before. Why he's still in prison? He's still in prison? Yes. He's in prison right now, 40-some years. And that's Charles Wilson. I'm just going to write that name down right now. I got it. Uh, Our producer, Connor, who's, of course, listening in. It sounds like we're going to have to cover this case. We're representing Mr. Wilson. We definitely need a push. I'll, I'll discuss to you, you know, what our strategy is. Well, you know my number. So this guy, Edward Allen, Larry was definitely not his only, you know, victim. Let's call it what it is. In fact, he gave an interview. Edward Allen gave an interview in 2017 in which he spilled his guts on everything, which ended up being very helpful in freeing Larry and several others. When the informant was interviewed, he said he had never seen Larry before. He didn't even know what he looked like. He says that he was fed the information by prosecutors and by police officers and told what to say, who to point out, and how to get around the questions of the defense attorney. This was not an accident. This was deliberate. Larry and his mom were ill-prepared to fight against this because Larry had never been in any trouble before 
His mom at the time that this was going on, she was so adamant that Larry didn't do anything. And and do you know whose testimony they found not credible and whose testimony they found credible? I can guess. They found mom's testimony not credible, but somehow a lifelong informant who had not even met Larry, didn't have any of the details correct, somehow the court and the jurors found this guy to be more credible than the person who gave birth and raised Larry. Credible until, of course, he was no longer useful. And as I understand it, before the 2017 interview and all this information came out, Allen had actually written a letter to Larry in 2003 admitting that he'd lied. But the judge denied your motion for a new trial anyway, saying that she didn't find Allen's recantation credible. How convenient. Then your new attorney, Mary Owens, filed a habeas in 2007. The following year, the Michigan State Crime Lab was shuttered after widespread errors in firearm testing and ballistics evidence were exposed, including in cases involving the expert in your case, David Pouch. So when Mary Owens sought to retest the 40 caliber casings allegedly found at the scene and in your basement, the crime scene casings were saved, but the one from your basement had been destroyed. Again, quite convenient. So I didn't just jump from 2007 to 2013, right? I'm transferring from prison to prison. So a guy by the name of Jesse Agnew, he asked me to see a brief of mine. He said, hey man, I'm gonna introduce you to Claudia Whitman. She came from Colorado and she went to bat for me for like 12 years. She fought for me pro bono, her and Mary Owens. And come be knowing all the guys who got released based on this, what happened to me, Claudia Whitman, she ended up knowing all of them. There were four guys whose convictions were reversed that were tied to this ninth floor allegation and a certain set of homicide detectives. And they had what they call our conviction integrity unit in Wayne County. That's what opened up. And that's what freed me. So when Val Newman and the conviction integrity unit started investigating these cases, they saw that the same allegations were being made. And Jason, you know how that goes, right? Like if, if, if one person, yeah, two person, maybe, but if three, four people, five people are saying the same thing, then it deserves some, some credit and also some deeper dive investigation. In Larry's case, they went to interview the witnesses again. And sure enough, the young lady said again, she never told anyone she saw Larry shoot anyone because she wasn't even looking out outside. She said she never said it. So at that point is when I believe Val Newman and the Conviction Integrity Unit acknowledged the corruption that was so blatant in the case. I tip my cap to the courage it took from that office to overturn his conviction, because if it was left to Larry filing a motion in court, we would be doing this interview off of a prison call because no court is really designed to take such courageous acts. They are more so designed to preserve finality than they are to deliver justice. That's true across our entire criminal legal system, unfortunately. And the Supreme Court of the United States actually ruled that way and said that even in death penalty cases, that finality is more important than actual innocence. And it, people find that shocking, and it is shocking, and it should be shocking to anybody of good conscience or just anybody at all. But that's where we're at. And of course, the system is designed, thanks to the 
the awful EDPA Act back from 1994 and other factors. Let's repeal that. Yeah, we need to repeal EDPA. Exactly. Right? And and these things make it virtually impossible for somebody to dig out of that quicksand that you found yourself in. And luckily, there was a conviction review unit. And luckily, there was somebody there who was sincere. And that's a big part of why you're here. Man, it's heavy. And I, and I think every day, like, I love Val Newman because if it weren't for her, I wouldn't be out of prison. She said that one wrongfully convicted was one too many. So, you know, I'm just hopeful that they hear this and they hear the plea for that man, Charles Wilson, so that I can get that stuff off my conscience because I know that guy lied on me. And every time I talk to Charles Wilson, I'm telling him, bro, it's going to be all right. And it's making me feel like I'm a liar because it's not all right for somebody to wake up for 40 years plus in prison for a crime they didn't commit. It's not all right. Yeah, well, we're we're in that fight together, and that's for sure. I and mean, we got Jarrett, you know. And for me, it, it's such an honor to get to know you and to see people like yourself who've been through hell and come out carrying buckets of water for the people you left behind. I mean, I don't think there's anything better, you know, you could be doing and and taking this horrible, horrible, unimaginable experience and transforming it into positive good, just as Jarrett has done, and as so many of the other exonerees have done. So, okay, so let's get to the good stuff. So ultimately, you prevailed. So take us to that series of events because I, you know, we've had a lot of doom and gloom on this show, but I want to hear the good stuff. Well, they had let um, Ramon Ward go. They had let Lucino Hamilton go. They had let Bernard Howard go. So watching these people go, my attorney told me that um, she felt like they was going to do something. So I was in the in there sleeping, and guys come and hit the door. Boom, 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 boom. I jump up like, man, what's up? Go to the door. They're like, man, you going home tomorrow. You going home tomorrow. And it's people all, I'm talking about like prisoners. They all in a in the hallway. And I'm coming out. I'm looking like, what's up? And um, the security guards, people, they clapping. Like, bro, you going home tomorrow. I'm like, what? They're like, yeah. I go to the TV. I see it on the TV. I get up there. I start passing my stuff around because they say I'm going to court tomorrow. Where they saying they're going to um, drop the charges. So the next day came and I didn't go to court. I just walked straight from back in the day room of the prison to the control center to the street where I read a four and a half page statement about other people innocent, medically frail, over sentenced, being incarcerated, asking the governor to take a look at what had been taking place. And that's just what happened, man. Like it wasn't no big long. It was, dog, you going home tomorrow. And I was to it. That must have seemed like a dream, especially since you were woken up out of a deep sleep and just banging, and then all of a sudden everybody's cheering. I mean, you must have had that dream before, and now it was real. I'm going to just say this. For anybody who's been through what we've been through, right, they're going to understand this. It's times in my life that I still think I'm dreaming, but I'm not going to do nothing to mess it up. See, I ain't going to do nothing to mess it up. As long as I keep putting out good energy, as long as I keep giving the love that was bestowed on me, See, I ain't get a second chance. This was really my first chance. But for a lot of people, our experiences, they consider it to be a second chance. They say stuff like, don't do that no more, right? So you're right. I won't go down to the police station. Like, <laughs> you're right. I won't do that no more. But as far as just loving and being a part of giving energy and advocating on behalf of innocent people, medically frail people, overseas people, like, I'm going to do that every day. Ain't a day going to go by, I ain't going to do that. Larry, is there anything you want people to do? Is there a website you think they should go to? Is there a, another person besides Charles Wilson you want to shout out and bring attention to their case? And wh yeah. what can people do to help? So out of Wayne County, we got Tamara Washington. She's going through what I'm going through. They say her file is missing. So she talked to Wayne County prosecutor. She told us that she would do what was needed in order to help her out. 
but she never did. So I want to shout out to Mary Washington, 486-364, Wayne Duff, 1644-98. Again, innocent, but he's been in prison over 40 some years. So I want to ask you guys this question. When a person is innocent, right, and they got natural life, when you say that over and over again, what is the next step? Is there any form of relief? Is there any form of relief with a person with a death sentence inside a prison? Like, is there another option that's made available for that person to? So you serve 40, 41, 45 years. When is enough enough? So I just want to point that out that in this country where you don't have no safe gates and then how you pronounce it, the AEDPA, APA. So then you got something as such. It don't allow us to file our appeals. So I'm hopeful that us as honorees, as a collective, can march down on D.C. and that we could talk to these administrations about what's taking place in this country. Because without getting our friends at the top to help us on our local levels and getting our people on the local levels to work with us people on these levels, we done, man. We done. So that's all I just want to say is innocent, medically frail, over sentencing. When you get old and you innocent, you're going to die in prison. That means you're going to become medically frail because you over sentenced. I just want people to learn that. With that, we now turn to my favorite part of the show, which, of course, is called Closing Arguments. Or I again thank you two guys. Jared Adams, Larry Smith Jr., for being here with us today and sharing your stories. And then I'm going to turn my microphone off and kick back in my chair, close my eyes with my headphones on, and just listen to any other thoughts you want to share with me and, and our amazing audience. So, Jared, we always do it the same way. You go first, and then we turn it over to our, our featured guest. I would love for us to find a way to implement both strategies that prevent wrongful convictions collectively, as well as tackle issues of reintegration. And I say collectively again, and I'm speaking to the entire innocent world when I say this, the innocence world, the movement, the network, the organizations, we need to start moving as one body because it is way too difficult to deal with one case alone. But collectively, if we move in the same direction, the same accord, same beat, it allows us to fight this giant a lot more effectively. I say that along with tackling the issue of government entities such as cities like the city of Detroit, who has decided not to compensate Mr. Smith, but instead find a way to limit their damages and continue to drag Mr. Smith through this anxiety-filled roller coaster that has not stopped since he went down to the police station willingly because his mama called. I'm just want to say that for every person that's uh, got a family member that's incarcerated, some people saying they're innocent, other people, you know, they're just there for a long time. Don't give up on your people. If it, my people would have gave up on me, I would have died in prison for a crime I ain't commit. And it was that energy that allowed me to carry on to our community in which I stay in and to be able to put forth these actions. So I just call on every person out there to put forth their good effort, put forth their good heart because it's something good in everybody, I'm hopeful, anyway. So free um, William Wiley, free Tamara Washington, of course, free Charles Wilson. And thank you for having us. Thank you for having Jared and myself. And thank you for doing what you do. Oh, free the innocent, free the medically frail, free the over sins. We cannot leave that out. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. You can listen to this and all the Lava for Good podcasts one week early by subscribing to Lava for Good Plus on Apple Podcasts. 
I want to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Annie Chelsea, and Kathleen Fink, as well as my fellow executive producers, Jeff Kempler, Kevin Wardis, and Jeff Clyburn. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us across all social media platforms at Lava for Good and at Wrongful Conviction. You can also follow me on Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number 1. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And for a limited time, get more fun for less with the Michigan Bundle for just $49.99. Exclusive to Michigan residents only. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.